This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Well, the media have been classed as an essential service in this current crisis, and undoubtedly they have conveyed critical information in the run-up to this week's lockdown and after it. But how should they challenge the government and health authorities without undermining the response to an epic national crisis? This week we asked one of the most strident voices in the media who was calling for an immediate lockdown last week, and this week he's been pushing for rapid and radical economic changes. Also, on Friday night, the government suddenly decided that magazines and some newspapers aren't actually essential enough to be printed and distributed under Level 4 conditions. Now, that came as a shock to the people who produce them and those who will miss them during the lockdown. Meanwhile, there's a push-on to get more people to subscribe to papers that can still be delivered to your door. But in these weird days, even that's not simple anymore. Put your newspaper in quarantine for 24 hours. The the, the um, latest studies showed that the uh, virus was still viable after 20, well, up to 24 hours on cardboard. So I would imagine that paper would be the same. But first, our media have plenty of emergency journalism experience these days after several major disasters and crises in recent years. But covering the whole country going into lockdown was a new one. This is an RNZ podcast. A couple of hours ago, we will get through this. We will be okay. Uh, But let's take it seriously. And good luck to you. Stay in the bubble. Stay healthy. Stay safe. And let's listen to Sweet Love. This is the Commodores from 1975. Take care. News Talk ZB nighttime host Tim Beveridge shortly before midnight on Wednesday, easing his listeners into the Level 4 lockdown with sweet love from the Commodores. Years later, Commodores frontman Lyle Ritchie had a worldwide solo hit with Dancing on the Ceiling, almost an option for people in lockdown these days at home, though they're more likely to be climbing the walls by the time the lockdown lifts. Well, we were already in a state of national emergency before Thursday's Level 4 lockdown, after the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern announced we were going to Level 3 earlier in the week. Groups representing teachers, doctors and some businesses had lobbied hard for tougher, faster containment controls from the government. And earlier that day, former Prime Minister's Science Advisor Sir Peter Gluckman added his voice to calls for extreme measures ASAP. But some in the media were pushing that line heavily too and pushing back at officials in doing so as we'll hear in a minute. The government's plan, though, was reinforced by the rolling news coverage on radio, TV and online, outlining what the lockdown would mean and when. And the media coverage made clear the things that people needed to know and what they needed to do and why. But just occasionally, there was a bit too much information. For example, as soon as the announcement of a lockdown to come was made on Monday, reporters were scrambled to supermarkets to witness the breakout of panic buying. Well, things are certainly heating up here. We understand just as soon as the Prime Minister's statement had finished that it, things got very, very busy and very, very fast. I mean, you can just see in the car park behind me, uh, there have been people waiting for car parks. It's just uh, a bit of a mayhem. Everyone seems to be relatively calm and polite with each other, uh, but there are certainly queues to try and get into the centre. Now, I went into the supermarket as well. There's not enough trolleys to go around. People are walking around really, really fast with a sense of anxiousness uh, written over their faces. 
TVNZ's Joy Reid there about an hour after the announcement on Monday. And it got more and more intense in the aisles as time went by, and TVNZ crossed to her again and again. And there was plenty more of that elsewhere in the media as well. Panic buying at petrol stations and supermarkets too. Shelves left empty from panic buyers yet again. The price of vegetables through the roof. Pictures of panic at pack and save seemingly swelling in real time prompted some reporters to wonder whether they might actually be undermining the message that there's plenty for everyone on the shelves so long as the first to come didn't super serve themselves. But reporters scouting the retailers on the ground did also provide news we could use. Yes, well here on Courtney Place, which is the hub for Wellington's nightlife, it's a bit of a mixed bag with some confusion from some food outlets I've been speaking to this afternoon. Uh, in terms of right now, uh, some businesses have explained that they are a bit confused about when these closures need to happen. Some have their doors closed, some signs on doors say takeaway only already and then others are uh, trying to, or planning rather to maintain uh, their doors being open serving food until midnight tomorrow of course now we are in level three it means that from tomorrow all non-essential services must close however some have gone early now here on Courtney Place not there were a few media missteps this past week for example a stuff.co.nz headline which said Ardern puts NZ under house arrest and a subheading which claimed Jacinda Ardern had just turned New Zealand into something close to a police state. The opinion piece by senior political reporter Henry Cook didn't actually make either claim. But that wasn't the most misleading COVID-19 headline this past week. On Wednesday, the UK's Guardian reported that expert Professor Neil Ferguson had told British MPs that the National Health Service there would not be able to cope with the number of coronavirus victims coming its way. The word not in the headline should have been now. The Guardian later said apologetically, a lot less worrying a verdict on the system's capability. And soon after that, on TVNZ's live special here, specialist in microbiology Dr Susie Wiles made the point that the worrying stuff wasn't really in the news media, it was on social media. And what would you like to say to people in terms of where they get their advice and messaging from? Uh, I've seen so much nonsense coming around and being shared on Facebook and things. Please, the COVID-19 website the government has set up is absolutely fantastic. It has everything that you need. You know, go to reputable news sites. Do not be sharing, you know, nonsense things on social media. But when things moved fast this past week, the news media were pushed to keep up. But they did it and more. Broadcasters' schedules were rapidly rejigged this past week to accommodate much more news and public information about COVID-19 containment. For example, in response to Ministry of Health concerns that they weren't connecting well enough with Pacifica people, especially older ones, TVNZ ran a Level 4 alert special on Thursday in nine Pacific languages as well as English. TVNZ's also launching programmes for kids and families next week on its channels and fitness sessions next week at 9am on TVNZ1 on weekdays and special kids' fitness classes too on TVNZ2 in the afternoons. And reporters also highlighted this past week where they thought there was a lack of clarity and helped to provide some themselves. For example, what the essential services were was not clear right away, and the news media helped clarify that the likes of the warehouse and Domino's Pizza weren't essential, much as they seemed to want to be. And on Friday, the media asked awkward but urgent questions about supplies of personal protective equipment for health workers, and Stuff's political editor Luke Malpass 
pointed out the mixed messages from the government and police about staying safely in your bubble. Now, the mostly clear communication of key facts from authorities, and then, by the news media, certainly boosted public understanding of the unprecedented restrictions when it really mattered. Have a listen, for example, to a businessman here called Richard, who called News Talk ZB last Monday after the announcement of the move to Level 3. So I already have all the plans in place for that. What a change. And, and I hey, I was one of those guys who was aft the flu. I know. Uh, so, so were many people. Uh, Duncan Garner was one of those guys as well. I mean, there's all sorts of people that were like that. But there's also our leaders like Boris Johnson and the UK. Yeah. Uh, this has been yeah, so right. quick that even the smart people have got wrong decisions made. You know? Yeah, well, they have. But elsewhere... Dumber people making dumb decisions were also making compliance a problem in places where the message from the top was much more murky. In Australia, the same day, its public broadcaster, the ABC, reported that surfers at beaches were abusing surf lifesavers who were trying to save them from COVID-19. And one who hadn't got the message even sledged the messenger. This surfer was one of dozens who defied the closure at Bondi Beach, taking to the water and taking aim at the media. I don't, I don't believe the stuff I'm seeing and reading, but I don't know what you guys are doing. A lot of it's bullshit, I reckon. But this week, the ABC was itself accused of undermining public messages. The ABC's own medical expert and award-winning broadcaster, Dr Norman Swan, had been pushing hard for tougher lockdown measures across the Tasman. His daily CoronaCast podcast had been a huge hit, and recently, on an ABC Current Affairs show, business leader Sam Mostyn explained Dr Swan's appeal this way. In the absence of there being a single source of truth... Norman Swan has become that voice for many people. And so when I talk to people, they say, Norman said to do this, or Dr Swan said to do this, and he's become a de facto um, trusted source of, of news. It's been reported that the federal government in Australia got so upset with Dr Swan's public criticism that it called the ABC's management to object. But Dr Swan's corona cast continued nonetheless, and so did his advocacy. In the same ABC Current Affairs show, The Guardian's Australian editor Catherine Murphy also made this interesting point about the media's role in the crisis. Now, we can't be stunned into, uh, into some sort of silence or timidity because the times are very serious. But how should media hold government and health authorities to account without confusing the key messages during possibly the worst national crisis since the Second World War? Well, the newsroom website here wasn't afraid to go against the grain of what the government and its experts were saying at that point, and they copped some criticism for it. The most strident voice was Bernard Hickey, who writes about economics, business and politics for newsroom.co.nz. Yeah, we thought long and hard um, about the op-eds that we put up over the last two or three weeks. In particular, there are a couple from Sam Morgan and uh, also a couple from people at the universities, um, Michael Baker and a few others, essentially saying uh, a lot of people inside government, not necessarily inside the medical community, but inside government weren't taking the threat seriously enough and that um, needed to, they needed to move faster to a complete shutdown. Now, these decisions should always be made by politicians with advice from you know, medical professionals. Uh, but there was a debate going on internally behind the scenes in government, and we understood that there was a debate going on, and uh, we were a little bit concerned that 
the public didn't quite understand the gravity of this threat from overseas. We knew that this would be slightly controversial, uh, but we wanted to make sure that um, there was a debate about what we should do next. I was confident after talking to them that this wasn't just, you know, some copy and paste view. This was something that had been thought about and debated internally and was a genuine item of public interest that needed to be put out there. And I think it did help shift the debate. But now we're on to, I guess, livelihoods and, you know, the economics of this, the economic impact of it and the responses that also requires debate, etc. You've been putting forward fairly radical solutions like, you know, New Zealand super style payments for everyone. You know, even by the end of last week, you were saying, um, does the same thing apply here that you're going to try and shock people in a sense to try and provoke reaction and debate? And, and again, you risk undermining careful announcements, planned, sequenced announcements that don't freak people out. Yeah, um, and we always uh, are thoughtful about how we um, put these views out. But to give you an idea of how the mood has shifted overseas and and how a lot of people in New Zealand are not aware of, of the debates that have happened overseas and that of the views that are expressed overseas now, just to give you an idea, um, two weeks ago, the chief correspondent the chief commentator for the Financial Times, which you, you wouldn't accuse of being a socialist organ, came out and called for a universal basic income. And in effect, the British government um, announced, at least in the short term, a type of universal basic income in its package earlier this week. Donald Trump has also essentially um, adopted it, at least in the short term, by sending a check for up to $1,200 to every single American. You know, it's it's mainstream thinking overseas. New Zealanders haven't really caught up. And I think that's a, a failing and part of the commentariat in the mainstream media in New Zealand, um, which I'm a part of. And uh, yeah, we do need a debate on it. And this is a real thing that's been discussed behind the scenes. Now, do you accept that there is a need? I mean, they've talked about this in Australia. For example, Professor Julia Leask talked about promoting health messages. You warn people what you're about to do and you roll it out in a couple of days and that could all be part of the plan. That in, in basically trying to kick the debate as you were um, with the news media's kind of um, imperatives going on behind it, that, that there was a danger of derailing things. The planners had fairly carefully planned out at the point that you were putting out those those provocative commentaries. Yeah, I mean, you're right. You have to be careful about what you do. No one wants to be the journalist who um, yells fire in a a movie theatre and causes a stampede that um, hurts people. But sometimes there is actually a fire and sometimes you need to say, get out of the movie theatre now in a, a fast and sensible way so that you don't have a, a real problem. In this case, it was very clear that every hour you wait is another 100 people who die or every day is another 1,000 people who die. And I, there were people behind the scenes. Well, now, you, you, don't, you, you don't know those numbers, though, do you, Bernard? You're really picking those out of the air. Uh, no, those were numbers that were told to me um, by people who had done some of the modelling. And uh, it's clear when you look at the modelling that's now public of 80,000 people who would have died if we'd done nothing. I'd also seen a lot of the reporting and the commentary coming from Italy where there had been a relatively slow reaction. And where now, as they faced being overwhelmed by this thing, they were yelling to the rest of the world, don't wait, move as fast as you can. But it's interesting how quickly the tone and the 
view of the government changed last weekend after some of the commentary started appearing in the previous few days. And are you and other journalists who've been attending the regular press briefings believing that you're being kept in the loop in an appropriate way? You wrote last week, for example, that you were concerned about the assistant governor of the um, Reserve Bank giving private phone briefings to banks and private sector economists, but not the financial media. Yeah, I was concerned about that particular example, but I'm not seeing other examples around the government where we're being held back from information. Um, I think the government's trying as hard and as fast as it can to get information out. Um, it's a very difficult situation where you're having to make big decisions on the run and uh, try to uh, inform everyone as quickly as possible. The Reserve Bank is a, an unusual situation, I think, where they're making huge decisions uh, for whatever reason, decided that the Reserve Bank governor was not able to or wouldn't talk on the day. And I can understand that. Um, that, that you're fighting the most enormous economic fire in our history. But if you're going to send the assistant governor out there to talk to economists about exactly how the Reserve Bank is going to conduct quantitative easing, uh, that is um, relevant information that the public should know about. And that's one of the risks for any government uh, in this situation where you've got massive changes happening really fast, where the pace of public debate is uh, not nearly fast enough for the crisis. Well, another of the kind of provocative and radical suggestions you put forward uh, last week was a media one. Uh, Television New Zealand should stop normal programming on TV One, no ads, no other program, just continuous uh, breakfast TV style format with news, live streams of everything, interviews with everyone. Uh, This is what a state-owned broadcaster should do, you said. Do you really think that would be effective in terms of, you know, what the public and what the public need? Because... It wasn't very popular with the uh, the viewers of whatever is on during the middle of the day, TVZ, which I have no idea of. Um, you're right, um, but they could turn it off or they could watch TV2 or the 97 other channels that they could watch if they wanted. Um, TVNZ is the publicly owned broadcaster of television. They could relatively easily go to a 24-7 format. Um, it would be hard but it is, you know, they've got the systems in place. They can broadcast 24-7. In a crisis that's moving as fast as this, sometimes it's really important to have the raw stuff up there for everyone to see immediately. This week we had um, some enormously influential and crucial news conferences held by the all-of-government um, COVID-19 team, the police commissioner, the head of MB, the director general of health, where everyone needed to listen, everyone needed to watch. And we're all scrambling around trying to find live streams online from TV3 or TVNZ or RNZ. And they weren't always um, held. Uh, They didn't run the entire thing. So a couple of times I was listening to the live stream on um, RNZ or on TV3, and then they broke into their normal programming to stop it. And I had to scramble around to find it elsewhere. In this particular case, where we have restrictions on how journalists and the public can uh, get around and look at information. Really, the lifeline to information uh, is either the internet, which is fine, or um, television. And not everyone knows how to use the internet or has broadband or or the broadband's working. So sometimes you need to watch television or listen to it on radio. And uh, television 
rightly or wrongly, is the way a lot of people get their information. The other reason I, I said that is partly just to um, call alarm, to say, hey, do people realise how serious this is? And Newsroom was publishing op-eds and other things saying, actually, yes, it is a big deal. And so that's a big call for an all-COVID, all-the-time channel. It may even come to pass as time goes by, we'll see. But the effects on non publicly owned media uh, for this uh, hover in the background uh, and may not take very long for those to become really critical. My understanding is that in the last two to three weeks in other parts of the media, so the, the newspapers and uh, television, TVNZ, TV3, you know, stuff in NZME, NZ Herald, uh, their advertising revenues have stopped. Understandably, the advertisers are, are fighting the fire of their lives right now. They don't have time to market. And so for those media that are pretty much completely dependent on advertising, so that's newspapers and television and radio, they face a massive challenge over the, not just the next you know few months or the next few years, the next few weeks. And it wouldn't surprise me to see the likes of NZME and Stuff and MediaWorks approach the government within a few weeks, if they haven't already, quietly behind the scenes, to say, unless we get some government assistance, there is a risk here that hundreds of journalists who are there, out there at the moment, doing crucial work, informing the public and passing on the government's message to the public, may not be there at all. And that is something the government will have to consider over the next um, few weeks and months. Because the last thing we want is some sort of collapse of the uh, commercial media, because then you'd, you'd essentially have the only media informing the public being owned by the government. And that is uh, that is a real risk. And I hope the government's thinking about that and the public um, may not be aware of it, um, but they should be. That at the moment, they're getting an enormous amount of, of very useful information from lots of different sources. Lots of journalists are working extraordinarily hard and doing some of the best work of their lives right now. But ironically, those organisations are simply not receiving any revenue from advertising. And the last thing we want is to be going through that threat, going through this upheaval with the only information coming from two organisations, TVNZ and RNZ, potentially one within the next couple of years, one organisation producing the news for an entire country. Uh, and where are people getting their news? Well, sadly, most people are still getting their news through their Facebook news feeds or through other uh, social media. And as we saw in America, if you rely on the Facebook news feed to inform the public, what you end up with is Trump and anti-vaxxers and Brexit. And I'm sure um, this government doesn't want that. And so I would expect the government to uh, get very interested in the next few months in ensuring that we have as many journalists as possible covering the biggest crisis in their lifetimes. Bernard Hickey, who writes about economics, business and politics for newsroom.co.nz and edits their subscriber service Newsroom Pro. And you can also hear him on the Newsroom RNZ co-production podcast, Two Cents Worth.